I will cut anything out that you regret tomorrow. Okay. I'm okay, happy but, to do but that. But to be clear, we haven't started that start point. <laughs> we haven't started. To be clear, none of this is in the podcast. So, okay. Okay. And That's then, but not yeah. always true, but we won't put this in the podcast. Sophie, you're making this worse. Some- we have not started <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> For us. <laughs> Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Not tonight, though. Hello. My name is Joel Toth, Kidney Boy on Twitter. And tonight, I have no COI. We got a good crew tonight. Sophie. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinician educator and nephrologist at the University of Colorado and the Denver VA. I tweet at at Sophia underscore kidney. I have no conflicts of interest, but I do have a habit of running people on 36.5 degrees Celsius dialysate. And I am personally offended when it's above that. Nain Aurora. Hi, my name's Nain Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. I tweet at Captain Chloride. I don't think you can have COI for this episode. I do have a three-year-old daughter and we watch Frozen on repeat. So there's that. <laughs> Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist at uh, Ottawa. Um, I do have a conflict. You can have conflicts. So we were a site for the MyTemp trial that we're going to discuss today. And before MyTemp began, we were a cold dialysis center, 35 or 35.5. 35, as low as 35. So that was, that was before uh, with the older machines. And then when we got the Baxter uh, machines, we had to go to 35.5. That's as low as we could go. But that was before MyTemp began. Your patients must have been pissed. It, it, they're from Ontario. That was like warming up, okay? Exactly. That's when you switch from acetate dialysis finally. And... Wow. <laughs> okay, we've got a we've got a special guest tonight. We have uh, the PI for the whole darn study. We got Amit Gar. Do I have that right, Dr. Gar? That's right. It's Amit Garg, and I'm at Twitter, Amit X Garg, and uh, I'm a nephrologist here in Canada, specifically in London, Ontario. I've been in practice for about 20 years, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. Excellent, excellent. I, I heard you're an avid listener of Freely Filtered. How many of episodes have you listened to? Oh, too many to count. <laughs> <laughs> you know, same here. You know, it's you and Sophia. Who, who's, who's listened to more episodes? <laughs> Guys, I can't believe to have to tell you this, but Sophie just told us that she's never listened to the podcast. Only when I'm editing. Only when she's editing. Okay. That's not true. I did let, listen to one a while back when I was about to give a presentation and it was helpful. But um, I don't know. It just doesn't cross my mind to <laughs> listen to other things sometimes. I like music. Oh, very good. So throughout my career, I keep seeing the same pattern 
a new therapy comes in vogue, and it makes so much sense. Sometimes the mechanism is complex. Think about hyperuricemia as a cause of CKD. Sometimes it's simple. ESAs to treat anemia and prevent the accelerated cardiovascular disease of CKD. But always there is an intriguing chain of literature to support the theory as you await the definitive trial. Sometimes the logic is so compelling that even when the definitive trial is completed, we ignore what we see in favor of the fairy tale we convinced ourselves was true. Hello, Bezerab's normalization of hematocrit and ESRD trial. Though mostly we want to believe that the clever concoction of basic science coupled with epidemiologic findings linked to a subgroup of a long-forgotten RCT or or an alternative mechanism of an ill-understood old treatment when woven together by clever narrative resembles truth. In addition to uric acid and anemia, you can add non-calcium-based binders, rapamycin and ADPKD, bartoxalone methyl in just about every form of renal disease. All of these clever stories and intricate evidence usually have a high-priced pharmaceutical at the end of their rainbow. And we want to believe. We want medicine to make sense. So we, want, we want rational logic to be able to understand disease. The body is complex and our minds are simple. And today we have a similar story, a simple therapy that made sense, a treatment that has a history of small studies and a mechanism that is easy to understand. It should have worked. I taught it to my fellows like it was known. And this one didn't even have the clever hands of big pharma pushing a money-making new paradigm. We're susceptible to these stories and we need to guard against them because they are compelling and can prevent us from even recognizing the gaps in our knowledge. Tonight, we're talking about my temp. Amit, how did you get to be the PI here? Tell us about your story to get here. Yeah, thanks, Joel. So in truth, I came at at this a little bit more from um, a need. Trials are pretty brutal to do. They're difficult to conduct. They require a lot of money. They require a huge HR infrastructure of research coordinators. They have these long informed consent forms that really are patients really reading them and really are we ever really testing comprehension. And then we have this data collection, case report forms, which we collect, and it takes longer to recruit than you anticipate. It's always, always underfunded. And you're really relying and calling on so many favors for people to do a lot of heavy lifting. And sometimes when the trials are done, it took so long that the question is not even relevant anymore. So is there a better way? Can we do this new type of trial, a pragmatic trial? Can we do a trial where We embed the trial in routine care where we don't have research coordinators in the field. But at the participating sites, there's no coordinators. That allows democracy in trials because then many community sites which who don't have coordinators can participate in the trials. Can we use a responsible, streamlined approach to consent? And that's consent to participate in the trial, notification if the trial is occurring. Can we also finally use existing healthcare data sources? to record all the outcomes that matter most to patients and providers. In Canada, we have large publicly available healthcare administrative data that record when someone's born, when they die, when they get transplanted, when they switch to home dialysis, when they come to hospital with an MI. Thinking about possible interventions to test in that framework, hemodialysis centers are quite well suited for these types of trials because there's a lot of data being collected in routine care. Temperature. I just want to make sure I get this straight. You wanted to test a pragmatic trial on dialysis patients. That was your that was the shiny toy, and you then had to come up with a question to ask that toy. If you ask me what what uh, the truth is around how I came to this, is that I really wanted to think about a new way of doing trials. And one of the considerations, if you're trying to test an outcome that matters most to patients, and providers, 
so let's say mortality or cardiovascular event, you need thousands of patients. And so the sticker price of those kinds of trials are sometimes 10, 20, 30 million dollars. I was very interested in this methodology. And then we were thinking about what our interventions could have, if positive, a very big impact. Something that's fairly simple, that if you showed it was effective, would be pretty scalable too, and sustainable. Because also one of the considerations, if you want a global impact, we're not splitting the atom here. We're talking about something that, if it works, could be easily implemented worldwide. So that's where I came from it. But there are other investigators who've done a lot of uh, mechanistic physiologic work. Okay, we're we're gonna get. We're, I think we're gonna get there. I just want to. Okay, so that you're like we've got big. We got a big problem in nephrology. We have very little evidence base. Certainly, prospective randomized evidence base for how we do dialysis. And part of the reason is we have an unwieldy system for getting that answers. And you had and you wanted to create a better system for that. Is that right? This is a approach. We have a, an unwieldy approach. approach. Or let method. me ask you this. And you and you you say this is new. Is it? Can you point to what what's the biggest or most most important pragmatic trial? Is there is there like when you say oh the greatest pragmatic trial is is there somebody that you fill in the blank for that that's that question? Well, if you, it's funny if you look now at all the major journals. Also, every week there's now a major pragmatic trial. It been, feels like no, but it feels like but it feels like a year ago there were none. <laughs> it does feel like there's a ton of them now. I completely agree. But is there is there is there, a, is there a granddaddy of them all? And nothing that comes to mind for me that I would say that this was the granddaddy. My temp, my temp is. I think so, right? That That's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, is this the one? Is this the kind of like, we're going we're gonna to go through it, but it really seems well done. It's mm-hmm. large. It's, it really feels like a definitive answer for the question. Feels like this is a great example of this. Yeah, I mean, and to uh, agreeing with Amit's a couple of points, for example, there was the ischemia trial done by the NIH on, you know, um, interventions in uh, cardiovascular disease, chronic stable cardiovascular disease. It cost $100 million. Can you imagine that $100 million? Again, NIH does have that kind of money, but I can't imagine any nephrology trial being done with $100 million. Uh, and the ischemia cost $100 million. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Oh, my God. And the second thing is, to Amit's point about, you know, this being a pragmatic trial, look at most of the decisions. When I said we are 35 or 35.5, why is that? Uh, you know, if our calcium bath is 1.25, our magnesium is 0.75. If I try to drill down, you know, why, you know, why are we all, and everyone says, oh, I don't know, we have always been doing things like that. And if we dig deep down, it's like, you know, maybe one of my older colleagues, actually, you know, 20 years ago, or rather 30 years ago, he picked something because he thought that's the best thing. And we have been doing that all ever since with no evidence. It's amazing how much of medicine, of especially dialysis, well, we've always done it that way, right? There's mm-hmm. nothing behind that. Mm-hmm. So this was this is like dialysis is the perfect way. Uh, and this kind of methodology is perfect to, to do it at the center level. But we'll get to the methods. You know, I'm trying to... Get and then, to methods. What was what was the uh, was it? Davido or Fresenius did a time trial, which was also a randomized pragmatic trial of dialysis units. It was NIH. Right? It was funded by Picori, I think, and NIH, uh, which yeah. was in the U.S. I, I don't. Davida were involved and Fresenius, but it was funded by the NIH. But Picori and Picori, and this was a disaster, right? This, this, this I mean, because they didn't get any differentiation between the groups, right? In the end, it was it was something that. Patients and doctors care so, so much about that they wouldn't buy into the... I mean, into the- it's, it's a glass half full or half empty. So they did prove that they could uh, do a randomized trial, that they could get buy-in from patients. They could do it without consent and so on and so forth. The main thing they did not achieve, right? The separation between... They get uh, separation uh, groups. Right, yeah. right. And What and, was that trial called? I'm sorry. What was it called? It was, it was called, called time. time. It was I called, called time. time. 
And, and I'd also echo what Swapsmo was saying. Like when Laura Denbers presented this, she's the PI of the trial. Like there are a lot of things that were learned through the execution of the trial in terms of moving things forward. But the separation between the groups they learned was very challenging to do. The thing my patients care almost the most about on dialysis is time. And this is a recurrent question that I am dealing with whenever I'm doing rounds is, Doc, do I have to run this long? And they want to reduce their time. And it was, uh, and, and I, and one of our, one of my dialysis units was actually a time site and it was, and it was one of the, it was the long times. It was a lot, it was a prolonged time and it was incredibly difficult. And I was, I was one of the people that was problematic <laughs> for prescribing short time, shorter times than I should have. So, in, so Joel, in you took down the trial. Is that what happened? Yeah, I took down the trial. That, that, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in the Lancet, they do a really good job sort of outlining some of the background. So they have that little separate outtake about the background. And I think that that's really important because there's what Joel really alluded to in his fantastic summary, which we haven't, he must have had a lot of time recently to write that so nicely. Amit, if you could just sort of highlight why the previous trials and studies that have been done are flawed and, and why we shouldn't be really relying upon those, uh, you know, like why initially why we were initially thinking that the lower temperature is potentially helpful and what those signals were and then why we think perhaps that was flawed and why we tried to do this study in the first place. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Sophie. There were two reviews summarizing the trial evidence for this intervention. One was a systematic review that I was involved with led by Ray Mustafa that was in C. Jason in 2016. And then there was a Cochrane review actually that was published in 2019. There's about 26 randomized controlled trials. 20 used fixed temperature cooling, where most often that was 35 or 35.5. The standard dialysis temperature was most often 37 degrees. In total, across all the trials, there were 480 for some patients. 24 of the 26 trials had less than 20 patients. 25 of 26 trials had a single center. And these review groups, when they use risk of bias tools, they felt that the methods were rated to be low. 18 of the 26 trials were crossovers with only two treatments. And the three trials with more than six treatments had a high dropout rate. So they then concluded a few things. One is that fixed Reductions in dialysis temperature may reduce the rate of intradialytic hypotension. And similarly, they um, said that fixed reductions in dialysis temperature might increase the discomfort rate. And so that's the evidence by which we made decisions. And what kind of got my attention also, there is this guideline, 2007 guideline in NDT that suggests what the level of evidence, and they suggest cool dialysis temperature uh, for, for patients with intradialytic hypotension should be level one evidence. Wait, rewind. This was this was a guideline in NDT. Yeah, two thousand seven. In two thousand seven, and and but it, was it part of a national organization or? or so it must it have been the ERBP. Yeah. Yeah, EB, EBPG guideline. Yeah. I don't know who that. Who is EBP? So European European, European best practice uh, guideline. European best practice guideline. So in that's two thousand seven. Said we need cool dialysate. Level so one. They, no, they said level one evidence to support that cool. The specific wording is guideline 3.4.1, cool dialysate temperature or isothermic treatments by blood temperature control feedback should be prescribed in patients with frequent episodes of intradialytic hypotension, evidence level oh, one. For hypotension, specifically for hypotension, not generalized for everybody, but for patients that had trouble with hypotension. 
Yeah. Now, the interesting thing there, though, is that when you look at a dialysis unit, you look at their blood pressures over a six-month period, almost everyone's had at least one episode of intradialytic hypotension. Like, and like, so when we say like it's recommended for that, it's very common. Many of our patients also have major cardiovascular disease. So, in fact, many patients experience intradialytic hypotension. Okay. So and oh, and one other thing, just you know, what's interesting in terms of practice patterns. In a recent international survey, ADOPT survey of over 270 centers, nearly half reported using cooler temperature dialysate in some patient care. Yeah. And then did any of these studies, we talk about dialysate temperature, does that translate to patient core temperature? Has anybody actually looked at what's happening when you give dialysis, a cooler dialysate to patients? Complicated because your body adjusts, right? Because then you start, if your temperature is going down, then you're starting to, your body's starting to respond to that. It's vasoconstricting. And then if it's going up, so it's actually been more complicated. No, but the interesting thing about that DOP study, and I think this ends up playing into your methods, and I don't want to, I, I, I want to kind of get to the methods because I got some questions about the methods. And I think that DOP study is illustrative, right? Because you need buy-in on all these dialysis units and you're not going to be able to get them buying into 37 if everybody's already gone to cool dialysis. Mm-hmm. So, so the fact that they were half and half is useful. Yeah. Except so except well, that some people would have to switch. I'm 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 itching to get into the methods. Yeah, let's, let's, let's 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 I can't we can't hold him back anymore. He's like a <laughs> he's like a bull. <laughs> in, in, in the starting gate. Go, go, open the gates. Yeah, so this is a really, really simple trial. Uh, but the co- two key things are it was a pragmatic trial that you heard about from Amit and, and it was a cluster randomized trial that we mentioned before. So this is what is the crucial aspect, uh, which is why the methodology, uh, the approach was uh, what Amit liked, but also which is core to understanding how to interpret the study. And, and when you have questions, stop and think, you know, this is not like any you know, individual patient trial. It's a cluster RCT. Uh, so it was done in almost all dialysis centers in Ontario. Ontario is a province in Canada where uh, uh, Amit and I live. It was a two-arm parallel group registry-based open-label cluster RCT, superiority trial. Uh, the intervention was uh, the temperature being 0.5 to 0.9 below the patient's measured temperature at each run. So at each run, the patient would come in, their temperature would be measured. And if their temperature was 36, they would go down to 35.5. So, uh, and they could go from 35.5 to 36.5. The control... What was the method of taking temperatures? Because when I go into daycare and I do the stupid forehead thing, I'm like, 30 i'm dead basically so, so pretty yeah. much they did the stupid forehead thing man they did yeah the no so forehead thing. To, so this is where the pragmatic and simple part comes back again it was left to whatever the units were doing so if a unit was doing armpit temperature it would be armpit it was forehead no touch method it was left to forehead no touch and amit will tell more about why it was done this way but from what i understand it's you, you're thinking about implementation what's the point of bringing in a different method to your center if that's not what you normally do so when the trial is done, then you are, hey, you know, we don't use this temperature method anyways. Before Um, we go further, can I just ask one question? Previous trials and studies, what temperatures for the standard were they targeting? Because I think 36.5 is a little low. You told me you do that on everybody. And if it's higher than that, you have a hissy fit. No, but but most of the other studies, the 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 higher the the standard was 37 degrees Celsius versus 36.5 and I think that's a difference for Fahrenheit for those of us who are Americans who can't handle the Celsius system. That's like 98.6 and I think in the grand scheme of things that's probably on the higher level of temperature and probably vasodilatory. So I'm just curious. I think that that's what the previous studies did. So this is a little bit different. In Ontario, most centers are using 36 
36.5. And when I looked at some surveys in the US, there's a reasonable number of US centers that use 36.5. In Europe, I get the impression many centers use 37. And, and again, definitely that's also occurring in the US. In Ontario, 36.5 was the most common temperature used. So that's why that had to become our, our reference group for this trial. But then when you interpret the result, again, you're interpreting personalized cooler temperature compared to 36.5. What are the results? Maybe it has nothing to do with cooling. Maybe 37 is deleterious. Like maybe that causes problems. You, you're not getting any of that. You're just simply giving an answer compared to 36.5. This personalized cooling has this effect. You know, I think it's important if a center has already decided, hey, we like cool dialysis, we're going 36.5 to try to convince them. They may get randomized to giving what they've already kind of thought of as substandard therapy, right? Something that they believe in cool temperatures. There's a 50% chance that you're going to have to warm up your dialysate by a half a degree or one degree Fahrenheit in the one true temperature scale. I think that would have been difficult to convince somebody. And I may, you may not have gotten a dialysis unit in Ontario. This didn't happen at our center because we were low and we had to be convinced to go to 36.5. It took a lot of work uh, on part of the site PI and Ameth and others to say, hey, you know, we really don't know. Uh, and it did happen eventually, but it took some work. We were part of the trial, so we did do it. Now, this comes up in lots of trials. You're talking about if there's group equipoise, is it reasonable to proceed versus their individual person equipoise? I think generally the feeling is if someone feels strongly this is the wrong thing to do, they shouldn't ethically participate in the trial. If they have a feeling, but then when they look at what their colleagues are doing and they feel that there is general different approaches here and all seem reasonable and within the standard of care and they feel comfortable then, then they can proceed. One of our requirements was the unit director uh, had to consider the trial and be comfortable to randomly allocate it in the two arms. And that actually dovetails nicely into the inclusion-exclusion criteria because this was a cluster RCT, not an individual patient RCT. So there was no consent taken of individual patients. There was no 20-page uh, legalese that people had to sign. And so we didn't need coordinators at each center. But there was information. So there were, you know, pamphlets which were put up, uh, you know, posters which were put up and patients were informed that you will be participating in this trial. And if you have any questions, we would answer them. But of course, the medical directors had agreed and, and the group had to agree that, hey, we will be part of this trial. Uh, the other inclusion criteria, like center specific, was that the dialysis unit had to be in Ontario because the data collection was all based on administrative databases based in Ontario. And the unit had to have at least 15 patients weekly for it to be included in the part of the trial. We do have some very, very few small units which were excluded. And patient specific, where they had to have be on dialysis at one of these centers. That's it. You know, there was no age. There was no, oh, you know, ex you exclude people who have diabetes, you exclude people who are, you know, women, men of this age, that age with prior cardiovascular disease, incident prevalent, everyone was in. Anyone who had dialysis from April 3rd, 2017, or the next four years was included in this. And of course, they had to have duration of dialysis more than 90 days, uh, and that to be more than 18 years of age. Now, uh, there could be patients who would opt out uh, af in that individual center saying, hey, you know, uh, we, we would like to not be part of the trial or the, I guess the nephrologist would say, hey, I think I want to change the intervention and they were allowed to change that. But as we shall see in the results, this was all tracked and the adherence was pretty good. You guys were thinking about, you know, mortality and cardiovascular events and intradialytic hypotension. Is there anything that would make you believe that cooler dialysate interferes with clearance and we're actually creating problems with dialysis runs and in general, are there actually problems that are have been associated with cooler dialysis? In terms of the uh, adequacy, there was some earlier evidence suggests that might be an issue, but then in the reviews, it suggested overall that didn't seem to be an issue. 
So that was uh, something. So that's that based on that's going to be based on urea clearance or small solute clearance, right. essentially. And then, and also, like if someone feels really cool and finds dialysis unpleasant, it's possible they cut their run short. And then, would people potentially feel discomfort with cooler dialysis? We allow in the trial people to use blankets, of course, external uh, things. Yeah, but that dovetails again nicely into the outcome. So the primary outcome for this trial was the composite of cardiovascular related death or hospital admission with a major cardiovascular event. So MACE, including MI, ischemic stroke, or congestive heart failure. I'm sorry. I just want to talk one more moment about the intervention. Did you guys consider when you were designing the trial to have one your control group be 36.5 and your intervention group be 35.5? Don't worry about measuring everybody's temperature. Just make it simple. Because, I mean, that's how we do dialysis in my unit is we have a fixed temperature. I'm not checking my people's temperature. Was this considered? And why did you reject that? Yeah, so it's a trade-off because if you do 35.5, some patients, when you use a fixed lower temperature, some patients feel shiver and feel uncomfortably cold, especially if their pre-dialysis body temperature is much higher than the set. The average temperature is 36.2. Suppose you come in at 36.5, you'd be dropping them a degree and they may not tolerate that. So then it's not necessarily going to get better separation. If people don't stay adherent to the allocated therapy, you're going to get less separation if they don't, if they don't follow that cooler dialysate prescription. So the personalized approach to lowering the temperature was used in one of the trials, Dr. Chris McIntyre's trial, and it seemed that patients better tolerated the personalized approach because, again, you're not dropping someone's temperature too dramatic if they have a higher pre-dialysis body temperature. Whereas if you use 35.5, especially patients with a bit of a higher pre-dialysis body temperature can have a bigger drop, they can find that quite unpleasant. And then you won't get adherence, and again, you won't get separation mm-hmm. between the groups. Mm-hmm. So it's this, this is the trade-off. These are, the, these are design choices. These are the trade-offs you have to consider. Yeah. And this is not like a, you know, drug versus, sorry, empagliflozin versus placebo kind of a simple intervention. You have to think a little bit about uh, what's going on in the patient's body as uh, Amit Ali did. So if if I'm allowed to go back to the yeah, end please, points. Have that, no, just start from the top of the endpoints. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the primary endpoint was very pragmatic, very important one of cardiovascular related death or hospital admission with a major cardiovascular event, including MI, ischemic stroke or congestive heart failure. Uh, this is something that could be easily captured in the administrative database that uh, Amit had alluded to. There were a bunch of secondary endpoints also. So the main drop, remember the, the main mechanism that is thought to be is the intradialytic hypotension. Uh, so the secondary endpoint was a mean drop in intradialytic systolic blood pressure, which was defined as the difference in the pre-dialysis and the lowest achieved systolic blood pressure during dialysis. In addition to that, the other secondary endpoints were all-cause mortality, a composite of all-cause mortality of or CV-related hospital hospitalizations, the individual components of the primary outcome, emergency room visits, hospital encounters with lower limb amputations, hospital encounters with major fall or fracture, again, hypotension can lead to falls. And there was an 18 patient reported symptoms, including self-rated health, headache, muscle cramps, feeling cold on dialysis. Now, some of these, uh, we talked about data collection. So the hospital admissions and stuff, that's easy to do in everyone. So, uh, you know, like Big Brother is watching uh, every person in Ontario, if they have a hospital admission, it's captured. But what about these specific things? So the drop in intradialytic systolic BP or this patient reported symptoms. So these were done in a subset of patients. Uh, I think the patient reported symptoms were done in a subset of patients from 10 of the trial centers uh, in a, in a cross section uh, during uh, near the end of the trial at 2019. And the systolic blood pressure was done in a random sample of each center every month. Uh, but not every run for every patient, right? As you can hear, this was a really large trial. 
So if you talk about doing blood pressure in every patient for every run, that would be a gigantic database of, of numbers uh, that would take a lot of money to collect. So it sounds like there were sort of like samples that were being taken here and there, right? So sample here and there throughout like monthly, but not like collecting data on everybody. Sort of like taking some random samples here or there that are supposed to be randomized to some degree. So yeah, exactly. Small. Like we had we had about during the trial period about 4.3 million hemodialysis treatment but we I'm sorry wait, wait how many how many treatments total during the study <laughs> 4.3 million 4.3 million treatments you had patients okay you intervened on 4.3 million treatments that's the benefit of this type of approach like you're using that's incredible there were over 15,000 patients in the trial it was a four-year trial and and the total number of treatments delivered was 4.3 million take that cardiology <laughs> <laughs> But, but, get, but get, to the cardiology right there. Yeah. But, but getting back, Sophia, what you were saying is that we felt comfortable, like we standardized it a bit. It was at the end of the month, it was done on a, on certain days of the run, and then we randomly selected so that we had over 50,000 samples. And because it was randomly selected, I'm pretty confident they represented the universe of, of these 4.3 million. They represented it well. You notice how even the clinical trialist can't help put in some results into the <laughs> He can't stop himself. <laughs> But this is not this is not unusual, right? To to go back. Um, come on now, come on now. Let's keep it to let's rewind it. Let's bring it back to some methods. <laughs> I just want to say one thing about the methods. We took a practical approach where we used how the units were measuring temperature already because they they measure those temperatures and they provide care based on that. They see someone has a fever, these sorts of things. So while it's not perfect, they do that. And then the blood pressure um, measurements, typically in Ontario, everyone gets an automated cuff put on. There's a few measurements done before the dialysis run. It's done at least every 30 minutes. Sometimes it's usually done every 15 minutes. Some people could argue, well, that's still imperfect. But in my mind... There were so many measurements. If those measurements are a little bit off and that's random, that's not going to affect anything. If that's systematically different somehow than if you took a really careful blood pressure measurement in a more optimal way, then you have an issue. And if that particularly was different in the groups. But because this is done in routine care and because we had so many measurements, if there's a random noise, that's not going to affect anything because the sample's so large, any signals would still come through. The precision in the estimates is very small. From a practical standpoint, when I conceptualize this trial, and this alludes to what you're saying, you know, the crux of this study was getting separation between dialysate temperatures, which are predicated on patients' body temperatures. So if I still have this issue with if every center is measuring temperature differently, and now you're only taking a subset of those patients to analyze results, it still seems like that could lead to issues. But you're saying because there's so many treatments, it's not as big of a deal that we're measuring temperatures differently between dialysis centers. Sorry. So we sampled each dialysis center. The symptoms were only done in 10 centers, but uh, all the blood pressure and temperature measurements was sampled through all the participating centers each month. So right. it was a subset of patients within each center. Is that right? Or a subset of runs? It's a random uh, selection of runs per each month in each center. So again, if we're representing all the temperatures as done in routine care, and we other thing in terms of the methods, we were targeting a 0.5 degree separation between the two groups, because uh, the physiologic evidence suggested that even a 0.3 degree difference in the dialysis temperature was physiologically important. So Amit, that's interesting, because I, I didn't see that in the methods that you guys actually specifically were targeting that 0.5 Correct. degree. That was, that was in our protocol. Difference. And it's also described sorry, in the paper. It. Yeah. And did you mention this before? Is that less than others? studies? Some of the other studies I was seeing were up to one to even two degrees of differentiation. 
between groups. Yeah. So then when you're trying to put it in the context of the previous literature, one consideration again is that the reference group is 37 versus 36.5. And then also sometimes they were targeting a fixed temperature of 35.5. So the between group separation was larger in some of the prior, like in the, in the studies we discussed earlier. Yeah. So it's so on the subgroup uh, on the fact that only a sample was taken, you know, we discussed the um, SAS trial, uh, salt substitute from China and stroke. Uh, so that was also a cluster RCT, 600 villages, 20,000 patients. Uh, they did not do 24 hour urine sodium on everyone because they could not uh, do it on 20,000 people before and after. So they did in like a few hundred at the baseline, a few hundred at the end and a few hundred in the middle. So this is not uncommon, this kind of an approach, just because of the sheer size of the study, it's so huge that to take a random sample, there is precedence for that. I have something about the uh, methods. Sure, yeah, yeah, go ahead. This is a cluster randomized trial. What are we trying to do? Our intent is influencing the dialysis director of what their blanket default temperature should be. So that's the intent of the trials. But in my mind, one of the main other considerations is it just has broad eligibility, like everyone's able to participate. Even though it's cluster randomized, I think one of the main considerations is just everyone's eligible. When we get into the results, we'll look at that patient characteristic in the trial. They represent truly who receives dialysis. And it's been shown clearly, Meg Jardine has a nice paper, that people who participate in traditional trials systematically differ than the patients who receive hemodialysis and routine care. So that's also another strength of this design. It's everyone who really gets the therapy and routine care. In the end, what we have is a pretty simple trial, right? We've got patients that are by center randomized to two different dialysate temperature strategies, either personalized or fixed dose. The fixed dose ten is going to be a higher dialysate temp. They're looking for about a half a degree separation and they got four years and they got 4 million therapies. We were going to get, it's a massive sample size. Sophia, Sophie. you're up. All right. It's my turn. So let's start with our results. 97 hemodialysis units actually met criteria. 84 were enrolled, so that means 42 in each arm. There were 8,000 patients in the personalized cooler dialysate group and 7,413 patients in the standard dialysis arm. So moving on to characteristics, the mean age was 66 years of age. There were approximately 40% women. 59% had a history of diabetes. 73% had a history of cardiovascular disease, which included angina, CHF, and transient ischemic attacks. So 37% entered the trial on April of 2017. The remainder entered the trial within that four-year time period. Median follow-up was at 1.8 years. And... During that time, there were similar rates of immigration out of the province, switching to home dialysis and transplant between the groups. Did you see that percentage of people that switched to home dialysis? That was amazing. Ontario. 6% of patients. That's, a, that's really impressive. I didn't actually write it down. Yeah, it was 906 patients switched to home dialysis. 1,282 received a kidney transplant. Nice. Wow. Well done, Ontario. Well done. As an aside, where some, especially the reviewers, gave us uh, negative marks for Ontario is that the catheter rate Ontario is very high. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a fistula first province. I was not going to bring all that up because I didn't feel like it was relevant. <laughs> I guess that's my question. When, is there any reason? To, I can't think of a reason, but there any reason giving cool dialysate or dialysate attempt through a catheter versus a fistular graft that's would make a, a difference? Point, I mean, directly the into blood, the heart versus, you know. Right, right. The blood goes directly into the heart with the catheter and with the fistula, it's, uh, I think the 
perhaps the temperature in your arm is lower than your core temperature but again it's randomized we have enough patients in both arms with a fistula or a catheter i don't know that matters but you know in table 1 um if i can say that sophie uh, some of the interesting things are that 27% of patients had copd 10% of them had dementia 17% of them had major cancer which goes back to your point about you know these kind of patients would typically be excluded from uh, traditional rcts in this uh, study everyone was in so you can generalize uh, joel will be happy to say these trials are these trial results are generalizable to you know the typical hemodialysis patient right and so like again 20% were really over the age of 80 like you said 5% in a nursing home but then it gets back to like now the methods again this responsibility of being even that much more careful when you're doing these kinds of trials because it is a very vulnerable uh, set of patients that are being participating in these trials all right I'm going to move on. So figure two did demonstrate that there was a clear separation of temperature between the cooler dialysate and standard dialysate group. Sorry, in the figure for the Americans, the, the Fahrenheit is given on the right. <laughs> you know why it's on the right? Because it's Because the right he... way to measure temperature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Only I think Americans and Fiji, I think there are two countries that don't follow SI units in the world. The U.S. Oh, and the not, Fiji. Stop claiming you're using SI units. You're not measuring it in Kelvin. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> One day. <laughs> Go ahead, Sophie. Okay. So before I move too far, though, just to say the mean pre-dialysis temperature was 36.2 in the cooler dialysate group and 36.3 degrees Celsius in the standard temp group. And then the mean dialysate temperature... that was set for each patient was 35.8 degrees celsius for the personalized cooler group and 36.4 degrees celsius with a between group difference of 0.61 degrees which was considered to be st- statistically significant and then it was also mentioned that there was a median difference of 0.66 degrees celsius so what's interesting is it meant that the dialysate temperature was programmed a mean 0.4 degrees cal- uh, celsius below the pre-dialysis body temp in the personalized cooler dialysate group and 0.14 degrees celsius above the pre-dialysis body temperature in the standard temperature group so i think it's interesting so it was set below the um the personalized cooler dialysate group and it was actually set above the the standard group And I'm just going to bring this back is it in previous studies it's interesting that they actually set temperatures for dialysate temperatures of actually 37 degrees Celsius. So it's it's really interesting like we were all we're already setting it a little bit above in that standard group, but previous studies like it really does sort of create a much greater differential previously and maybe that's why there was a signal that was seen then that we're not seeing now. Maybe there was harm in having that temperature of 37 right. and that and not I think that's I think that's the case. Exactly. I think that's, you know, that's one of the takeaways that I'm Well, maybe maybe a few things about that graph that I thought was interesting around the separation. One is as you're saying the uh, mean pre-dialysis body temperature was 36.2. So even at 36.5, you're setting the dialysate temperature above that temperature and you're warming patients up on dialysis with 36.5 right. and you're warming them up even more as the points being made if you put 37. Right. So that's the other thing that is interesting about this graph is that the onset of the covid pandemic came in at around the 3 year mark of the 4 years and you still see that we had uh, excellent separation 
And so showing that once you embed this in routine care, it really wasn't affected by the pandemic. Sorry, this operation is very nice compared to the time trial. Can I say that? Yes. The, the Ontario yes. did way better than the US. That was because of Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we did have Joel. <laughs> yeah, man, wait till I move to Ontario. You'll screw everything up. <laughs> so I, I do think it is impressive to see that that temperature separation, but 0.6 degrees of Celsius, that's, that's still a small separation. Now, again, it's much more impressive than somebody who's based on Fahrenheit. And so I always have to convert my brain. So it's one of those things. I, I'm not really doubting. Wait, so, Sophie, okay. when you order dialysate, temp- do you order dialysate temperature in Fahrenheit also? No. Okay, just check. <laughs> I don't okay, you don't. You don't. Okay, okay. And then you convert don't. it back. Come on. <laughs> You're going but round I, trip on that I'm one. Okay. What I'm saying is that 0. 0.6 degrees is, is, is small. Well, so well I'm just well, wanting to highlight that. Yes, it's a beautiful <laughs> separation. It's still small. Well, one, one thing to think about there, actually, it's, it's quite impressive what the body does in terms of regulating temperature and everything. And very small differences, again, when you look at the physiology, at least suggest that there effects. So our target separation in planning this trial was 0.5. We achieved that target separation. And in the uh, introduction of the, of the paper, we clearly cite literature that suggests even a 0.3 difference has been reported by others to be you know, physiologically important. So I just wanted to put that in the context. When I first, when we were first talking about this trial, I totally agree with you, Sophie. I was saying, well, 0.5 degrees, is that really a big deal? Uh, but then when you dig into it, this is seen to be reasonable. And also, like uh, again, I just want to make the point, if you set the temperature lower, you're trading off against lack of adherence. So if you set it, let's say, to 35.5, then you're going to get more people not tolerating it. So that's the trade-off again. Yeah, and, and we couldn't go down below 35.5 anyway, right? So it would be hard to achieve, unless unless you went up to 37, it would be hard to get a big enough separation uh, the well, way then, uh, Sophie would like it. Okay, I will, I will say one thing, and I'm going to convert this to our dumb, simple Americans. But I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out here. So I think the the 35.8 is the equivalent of 96.4 Fahrenheit. And then the 36.4, which was the standard group, is 97.5. So that's one degree in Fahrenheit. So one degree. It's it's the same separation, though. You know that, right? I, I understand it's the same separation. I'm just converting the units for people who are as dumb as me. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the right side of the figure, too. So. I know, but I'm not looking at the figure right now. Okay. <laughs> Don't put this in there at the beginning, please. <laughs> There's no way I would ever do that. I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> Somebody wants me to just to spell this out for them. Don't you? Don't you worry. I spelled it out for you, dumb Americans out there. Hey, Amit, one one question: When you say zero point three degrees Celsius has shown in prior studies to be of physiologic importance, was that an increase in peripheral vascular resistance, or what was the benefit that was cited with that change? So we'd have to pull the papers again, but it was things around like again, like yeah, interdynamic stability, uh, nitric oxide. A number of things have been described. To represent it most precisely, you'd have to go to the references to look at it, mm-hmm. but, it's, but it's described. Which is even worse than going to the supplement. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more clicks. You get there. <laughs> many, many clicks, many paywalls involved. So primary outcome, what did it do? All right. So back to our primary outcomes, which is composite of cardiovascular related death or hospital admission with major cardiovascular event, including myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke or congestive heart failure. 
21.4% in the personalized cooler dialysate group and 22.4% in the standard temp group, which comes out as I think 10.5 versus 11.2 events per 100 patient years with a hazard ratio of one and confidence intervals that are not significant, 0.89 to 1.11. And this was essentially consistent across all sensitivity analyses and nine subgroup analyses. 1.00, as good as can be, right? A perfect hazard ratio, (laughs) 1.00. Right, 1.00. Neutral result. And then the other thing that we all know, unfortunately, when you look at the cumulative incidents of four years in that graph, like 30% of patients are experiencing the primary outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's just sad. I mean, that's just sort of the reality of our dialysis population. Mm -hmm. I am curious, there was a a trend towards favoring personalized um, cooling in the patients without cardiovascular disease. Is it because the confidence intervals are so wide and it's such a small number? Swap is telling me just to ignore it. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, if number, you know, the lines will seem to wiggle here and there a little bit. Okay. There's nothing there. Yeah. Okay. So then moving on to the systolic blood pressures, which are was our key secondary outcome, the mean drop in the personalized cooler dialysate group was 26.6 millimeters of mercury versus 27.1 in the standard temp group. That was a mean difference of 0.5 millimeters of mercury, which was non-significant. Sorry, which goes on to talk, go back to Amit's point about the fact that intradialytic hypotension is very common. Again, this is not symptomatic. This is a number, but this is telling you most patients have a blood pressure drop of, of over 25 millimeters during a random dialysis, right? These are not patients who are prone to uh, intradialytic hypotension. This is just uh, any random patient in this trial, which says that any random patient is perhaps prone to getting intradialytic hypotension to Amit's point he made earlier. But we're also making the assumption that these patients aren't hypertensive when they start. So, I mean, many of them, that's the achieved outcome is that we want to drop their blood pressure because we're also ultrafiltrating them at the same time. So yeah. this information is very vague and how to interpret it is also... I mean, we should remember that this isn't like the population that we worry about who we really want to put on a low dialysate temperature who's like already hypotensive. We're like, we better drop it because we don't want to contribute to that. This is like all comers, right? Yeah, they're all, they're all comers. But then if you look at now binary, like intradialytic hypotension, 10 to 44% of the treatments, like, let me say that again, 10 to 44% of the treatments had intradialytic hypotension, depending on the definition you use for that. There's, as you know, there's no good standardized definition for intradialytic hypotension. Some people have tried to see whether you definitely need symptoms or intervention, like you put them, you stop the dialysis or you put them in Trendelenburg or you gave them fluid. And those definitions that we have in the appendix are the ones that have been shown to associate with mortality by Dr. Fleith in her paper. So that's why we chose them. Yeah, so that's uh, that's table S4, Joel, in case you're looking. And one of them is, for example, the nadir systolic uh, BP being less than 90. Uh, so that would be sort of the patient that you're worried about, Sophie. So if you use that definition, it was about 9.9 versus 10.8. Uh, if you use, you know, a more broad criteria, then it goes up to 42.2%. So irrespective of the definition that is used, there is no difference. It also makes me wonder more philosophically whether interdialic hypotension is the correct variable or the thing we should be 
looking at particularly if patients are hypotensive because that's not telling us anything about organ perfusion and cardiac remodeling and these other things that we know happen in, in dialysis patients. Yeah, but that was if you go back to Chris McIntyre's study that, that Amit and Joel, Joel, I think, changed his practice based on that study showing white, ma- white, white matter changes in the brain based on, you know, 13 patient RCT. But that was the proposal that it's these repeated episodes of intradialytic hypotension that causes myocardial stunning and, you know, brain white matter changes and so on and so forth. So that was the theory. So maybe, you know, maybe, you're right. Maybe, maybe that's not right. Exactly. Maybe that's exactly. not the thing. That's exactly. just what we see and what we can measure, but that's not really what's going on. Exactly right. Our nurses are really good at treating intralytic hypotension, right? Patients don't die. We pick it up and, and they stop the UF, they do Trendelenburg, they do ABCD. So our protocols now are so good that the uh, adverse consequences of intradilytic hypotension are are uh, are minimized or not as bad as they were, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago. Unless patients are getting volume overloaded because of the interventions that we use for interdilatic hypotension. When I see these results, again, if you say that the blood pressures, there's some imprecision in the measurements. Again, this is the nadir blood pressure measured in routine care against the against the pre-dialysis blood pressure, systolic blood pressure. I think that's clinically relevant. That's what we do in routine practice. And yeah. And 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 you're seeing pretty precise estimates. And now look at the previous literature, 70% reduction in intradilytic hypotension, less than the drop in systolic blood pressure by 10 millimeters of mercury. So that's what the literature suggested. And here you have these results. And even if you took the position, you know, we m- missed an effect, like, I don't think it's plausible to think it's a 70% reduction in intradilytic hypotension. I just don't see that. With, with these numbers of patients, that would have been some subgroup in which this effect would have been clearly apparent if it truly was there. And then one thing we did actually, so when you restrict the analysis to those treatments where you got full separation, they followed exactly 36.5, they followed exactly 0.5 degree below or lower. You see no difference. You see the exact same results, no difference between the group. So that's, are you talking more like the as-treated evaluation versus the intention to treat? That would be the as-treated for the for the blood pressure because uh, the way we sampled, we got the blood pressure and the temperature on those runs. So we know exactly what the temperature was for that run and we know the drop in blood pressure. So even when you restrict to just full separation and you get like a 0.7, I think now you still see no effect on the blood pressure. All right. So moving on, all other secondary outcomes were non-significant. And then when we get to our patient reported symptoms, which I think is um, notable to bring up, respondents in the personalized cooler dialysate group were more likely to report feeling uncomfortably cold in dialysis. We need to specify that these are not patients in Miami saying they're cold. They're in Ontario, Canada. So <laughs> this is like hell hath frozen over when a Canadian right. says that they're cold. So this is this they're is bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyways, so compared to the standard dialysis group, they complained of complained of it more. The relative risk was 1.6 with a 99% confidence interval of 1.1 to 2.5. Yeah. One thing there, someone will say, well, it's an unblinded therapy. People will know that they were on the cooler temperature. So that's going to affect their subjective reporting of how they feel cold. But at the end of the day, in routine care, if you deliver this intervention, it's going to be unblinded and people, it's valid if people say, I feel cold knowing that I'm getting it. Like it's still a valid response, no matter how you look at it. Like even if Mm -hmm. they know that they're on it, because that's what would happen if you delivered it in routine care. Yeah. So, so it doesn't work. It doesn't lower blood pressure. It doesn't stop you from uh, dying, uh, and it makes you more miserable. Some patients felt more uncomfortable on it, yes. I, I still don't feel like we've evaluated the population that has like 
I, I know that we've evaluated some of them, but I think we've got a big span. I feel like we can't say, okay, don't do a lower dialysate temperature in the patients who are having true problems with intradialytic hypotension. And I don't think we should be spreading that to everybody. So like, oh, don't do that because it doesn't work because it's not necessarily the message here. Really, the yeah, message is we should not be setting a standard of 35.5 degrees Celsius as our, you know, as our standard dialysate temperature. Yeah, like Sophie, the way I say it is the following. Okay, uh, this really comes down to the intent of the trial. If the intent of the trial is in, to influence the medical director's decision of what should be the default protocol, because we have lots of default protocols for dialysis temperature, then this would suggest a lack of cardiovascular benefit compounded by the likelihood of patient discomfort that it should not be adopted as a center-wide policy. And similarly, again, I don't think it's the cluster issue. I think also if you had just giving it to everyone, you don't have the overall effect. So I'm reflecting my own practice. So if if I had a patient who was having recurrent intradiagnostic hypotension, I tried a number of things. Don't eat, you know, uh, you know, we can try some sodium ramp, we can try fluid ramping, we can do it. Don't take your blood pressure meds, do all these things. And they're still getting intradiagnostic hypotension. Would it be useful to try this? Like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. And I, I actually myself would try it. Where I'm at is I probably wouldn't just set it and forget it. Like I would probably try it, but then also just check in if the patient's, if it's reasonable to the patient, am I getting the right uh, response and our patients feeling comfortable with it? And this is a broad concept. Would I feel much better about knowledge of using it if there are future trials that show with those restricted eligibility, whether if it's interdialytic hypotension, whatever the eligibility, that this treatment has effects uh, that I care about and patients care about and beneficial effects? then yeah, then of course, I'm going to feel much better about it. But right now, I'm uncertain. Yes, I I love how careful you are at taking these results and not expanding them beyond that. But God, this does poke a huge hole in the idea that this is an effective therapy for drops in blood pressure. I mean, I mean, I, and I want to just bring back what you said earlier is that Intradialytic hypotension is not this rare occasion that only a few people have. It's just a part of the reality of hemodialysis. This is a common complication and dropping the blood, the temperature on everybody did nothing. You got it, nothing. It, it probably just says more about the substrate of the patient rather than any ex- exogenous factors that we have control over. Yeah. Phrase it another way. Like we sometimes say like, particularly people who have been on dialysis for a while is just that you know, the physiology has been so affected and somebody said the, the bomb has gone off. So it's really hard to really go back and try to, uh, to fix something. So that's why we also did some analyses by dialysis vintage, ESRD vintage. And we still didn't see even like for new hemodialysis patients, we were, if we were seeing a signal of benefit, we didn't see any of that. And, and let's not forget that the previous trials, as Amit alluded to uh, in the discussion, you know, many of them were single center, the risk of bias was high. They were not the best quality trials. Many of them are from, you know, times when uh, reporting was not as standardized as it is now. We have a 15,000 patient trial with 4.3 million dialysis treatments showing a clear separation in temperature, no difference in blood pressure, no difference in CV outcomes. If we don't embrace these results, what are we going to embrace, right? We, we, we complain and bitch about the lack of RCTs all the time. Now we have a really well done, properly powered RCT Yes, pragmatic cluster RCT in, in Lancet. Let's embrace those results. Although, to be honest, 
if a patient's on dialysis and they're hypotensive, before I even get called, they've stopped the UF, <laughs> given them fluid, turned down the temperature. It doesn't matter, right? The, yeah. It's the dialysis nurses who are taking care of the patient more than I am. So all that's going to be done yeah. before I even get the phone call. No, but it does it does matter, right? Because this is the thing that opens the door to if we now know that this, we're not going to waste big resources saying, hey, we just really need to work on the temperature. This is an opportunity to say, okay, hey, intradialytic hypotension is a problem. This standard therapy that we've been doing does not work. We need better options. We need yeah, we need studies on midodrine. Another thing that we're doing all the time, we've got a lot of retrospective data that makes it look terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this drug looks like it's 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 a really frightening drug. Boy, we ought to get some data. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I'm just saying that it allows us to Put resources in other oper- in other options. Well, the, the the next study is let's do this for turning down the blood pump speed, which also makes no sense to me. Oh, that one makes no sense. Zero sense. This at least had some physiological, you know, plausibility. Uh, the the dilated blood pump has no plausibility. Yeah. Anyway, well, for you, it probably did before you switched off acetate <laughs> dialysate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe let's just think about why are these results different than the prior literature? So speculate. So one, Mm -hmm. you could say maybe it's a a biased methodologic consideration. This is a higher level. uh, We're more certain the results because of of the methods used. That'd be one approach. But there are some other things we can think about. And we kind of said it today. So the comparison group was 36.5. And some of the prior trials used 37 degrees. Many of them actually use 37 degrees. Maybe it's greater separation and or maybe 37 degrees is harmful. Um, Martin Tal, who wrote the editorial for this, made that point. Two is, did we not cool the patients enough? Uh, the average temperature was 35.8. It was 0.4 degrees below their body temperature. Uh, some of the prior studies dropped the temperature more, but then you're going to trade off because some people won't be able to tolerate it. Um, maybe it's because um, uh, we didn't restrict the trial to patients with intradialytic hypotension. But I think I've made the point that some of the previous trials didn't even have that restriction, and they said this was beneficial. And these things are common, as, as Joel's saying. Almost everyone has this experience at least one event in every six months. And, and so I'm not sure there. But we need, if you're a believer, then I think we need better evidence in, the, in new trials with those restricted eligibility to show it's beneficial to prove the point. Are these not research-grade temperatures and blood pressure measurements? That was made on this call today. But I think for the blood pressure... Unless you think that there's a systematic difference, uh, if it's just random noise that it was a little bit imprecise, the numbers are so large and there, uh, there's so much uh, precision around the estimates, I don't think that's an issue. The temperature possibly, but then that's how it would be implemented routine care, like uh, Swapanil said. We wouldn't like say, okay, and by the way, you've got to change your temperature the way you measure it uh, and buy all these new thermometers and that's how you implement it. We're thinking about pragmatically how it's implemented. And then... Um, is it possible patients acclimatize to lower temperatures? Like some of the previous studies only did a two treatments and they crossed them over. They did two treatments the other way and say, well, this is beneficial. That was what many of the studies did before. But, you know, is it possible that if you now get it for, you know, 10, 20, 40, 50 patients, uh, try treatments, you're suddenly acclimatizing so it doesn't have its effect. And then maybe there's a better way to cool patients. Like we didn't use that approach. You know, sometimes you can have biofeedback where you have a, a, a dynamic blood temperature monitor and you're kind of like, um, changing the dialysate temperature accordingly. But that's not available in a lot of machines, so we didn't choose that approach. But maybe that's beneficial. Or uh, maybe we didn't check the right outcomes, even though we checked outcomes that are really important. We didn't really check function, you know, here. 
maybe people's cognition was different, uh, you know. So, but but overall, when I look at the results, I'm kind of in the same camp that many people in this call is. That I think there's enough here to give you pause about using this definitely as a blanket for dialysis and also in individual patient care there's enough here to just make you rethink this a bit and if you are using it being a little more careful about it that's what i think Amit, so now that you have this data what is the temperature that you're targeting so it's interesting you asked that so we randomly allocated several of the units in ontario to cooler temperatures and now we have a obligation to share the results and give them guidance on what to do so our suggestion was don't use uh, personalized cooler dialysate as your standard protocol. So especially if we randomly allocated to during the trial, please now switch back to 36.5 because uh, that's our standard in Ontario. So Swap, are you guys are you guys warming your dialysate on everybody now? So They're now I'm, using 34. <laughs> <laughs> so, so funnily enough, uh, uh, and I didn't know that, but I found out recently, We we it's all epic, right? So we have our EMR and, and there's a uh, standard default and the default went back to 35.5 and I guess that's what people started doing no one like oh you know it doesn't matter so people are not changing it it's 35.5 so I'm talking to Pierre Brown who's our hemodialysis director and I think we are going to because it's hard to tell people hey change it right so what we are going to do is behind the scene we are going to flip it to 36 and again, most nephrologists will probably not notice what happened. That's like the most socialist thing to do. We're not going to tell anybody. We're just going to switch it. That's so Canadian. Sorry, sorry. So you're going to switch it to 36 or 36.5? Yeah, or 36.5 maybe. Maybe we'll go to 36 before going to 36.5 uh, because we are 35.5, which is so funny, right? My time ended and we suddenly, it's like, oh, 35.5. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, so can I ask a philosophical question, Amit? Um, and, and hopefully Joel doesn't cut, edit this out. Oh, is yeah, that yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know? I mean, there are these these pragmatic trials. Again, it, it's sort of like a trade-off. These pragmatic trials have huge numbers, uh, and they are sort of easily generalizable and implementable. But do you kind of wonder sometimes? Is because the population is more heterogeneous? It's not a pre-selected cherry-picked population, and the intervention is kind of uh, you know pragmatic, and the measurements are pragmatic. Is that we are less likely to find an effect? even though there may be a true effect in a select subpopulation, right? Like if we are doing, instead of doing, you know, to take an example, instead of doing empaglofosin in diabetic nephropathy, if I just do empaglofosin in the general population and I measure mortality, maybe I'll miss the signal that is truly there by giving it in, in uh, patients with diabetic nephropathy. Do you sometimes wonder like that? Is it like too pragmatic at times? Not my temp, but, you know, in philosophically, these pragmatic cluster RCTs. I think like... SGL2 inhibitors, it's been shown in diabetics, non-diabetics. That is an example of kind of a blanket now treatment, to be honest. And, and when we talk about aspirin in cardiac disease and post-MI, when we talk about these things, if your approach is to test something fairly simple and scalable so that if you do prove its benefits, you're taking like a population-based approach, you can, you can certainly apply it worldwide almost instantaneously, right? Like there's not really many barriers to doing cooler temperature and there's not many costs. You just set the, it takes a little bit of time to program it, but it really depends on what you're trying to uh, do. If Turning it back to you in terms of philosophy, if you only have so much time in, in the day, is it better to test 10 things like this and if one of them lands, it suddenly has a big international impact versus take another approach to, to test something but only in select patients in very careful ways and if you get a benefit, first of all, in those types of patients, it may not always apply because you have to also have lots of resources to apply it and it's not going to apply to a lot of people. I don't think anything either approach is wrong. It's just, what are you trying to achieve? What's your intent? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a trade off, like you say, right? Uh, you will get some kind of results, but you may not be able to translate them as well as you can translate my temp results. I stepped on you on that. Did, we, did you have an answer? Yeah, that? yeah, no, no, no go no, ahead. I'm, not, I'm saying I just wanted to be clear. We didn't do the trial because we thought it was going to be neutral. We did the trial because we thought this intervention, based on all the previous literature, would show that this was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then would we have saved hundreds of thousands of heart attacks and strokes worldwide every year based on this result? Because we convinced everyone this is the thing to do. Like that was our intent for impact. Uh, we didn't get that result, and we were true to what the data was, and we presented it, what we found. But again, to be clear, our intent was not to show that mm-hmm. lower temperature is neutral. Yeah, it was a superiority trial. This is a massive trial. There has got to be lots of other publication opportunities here. Uh, what what other publications are brewing, or are you excited about, or am I wrong? This is it. We're done. We're never going to see another MyTemp publication again. <laughs> Fat chance. Fat chance. You had three publications before you get your main results. You're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> it's called promotion and tenure, Joel. I'm just kidding. I respect that. I respect that. I but I just want to know: is there something that you're? Is there a publication yeah. that you're late stages, or you're excited about writing, or what? What? What should we be looking for? Well, uh, a few things. One, in terms of the approach, we've published several papers also around the ethical considerations. And I think these things are complex and, and thinking through the methods issues, particularly the ethics, would be very helpful. And also the implementation things too. I think we already published an implementation project, but I think there's a lot of lessons learned on how you can think about implementing without coordinators. And you have to do a, quite a bit of due diligence before doing those kinds of trials. And again, we had to train over 2,000 nurses to deliver personalized temperature routine care and get that adherence that we wanted and that separation. In terms of the my temp results specifically, we're digging into some of the data just to see if it's consistent when we look at it a few additional ways, although in the appendix, yep. we did lots of analyses. You sure did. There is a NephroCare data set, Swapple knows this, that several of the centers have detailed, on Persinius machines, detailed information. That includes the temperature probes, that includes the blood pressure taken, all the blood pressures, etc. So we've been linking that with the other data sources. That's a bit involved because we have to set up data sharing agreements with all the sites. But we're in the process of doing that, and that'll be observational, but that will give us some insights. And we can do a pre-post comparison. We'll have what was happening just before. They've got randomly allocated. Suddenly, when they lower the temperature, what happened to those change in time with the same person. So Hmm. we're interested in doing that next too. And then finally, you know, this whole approach we now are using in other methods. We now have a a dialysate magnesium trial, which has has 150 centers over randomized in Canada. We have two groups for dialysate magnesium, and we're looking at outcomes, including muscle cramps and other things. And that trial, we're using the same methods. Wasn't that your dream RCT? Yeah, yes. that was yes, that was my dream RCT a uh, long, long time ago. Magic, yeah, magic, I think, is what it's called. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and, and a, a part of the author group on the like we did the review of the literature on muscle cramps and things, and so yeah, and and we discussed uh, dial mag in the NEF trials uh, a few months ago, as well so, the methods. So that'll be about eight million hemodialysis treatments, about twenty five thousand patients. Take that! Wow. Take that cardiology! Oh. Wow, very impressive work! Very impressive. And there are other uh, cluster RCTs, right? Uh, you are doing some, but uh, there is a resolve from, I think, McJardine is leading that, which is on dialysate sodium. Uh, so I think this is something we'll see more often in the hemodialysis literature, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely uh, more. We actually have something we call Gardner's Grove. So it's not called Shark Tank, where you kind of take down ideas. But we have one, actually, we did one before and we published the proceedings. And now we have another one coming up in the spring. And we have a number of ideas being presented. And a lot of these trials require a lot of buy-in input. We want to get the question just right. So 
last time we had over 100 people participating patients and healthcare administrators and, and nephrologists. So we have one of those coming up. And there's a five new interventions also being discussed for these types of trials. Um, can I ask, uh, I, I mentioned ischemia cost $100 million. How much did uh, MyTemp cost approximately, if you could share? Yeah, so if you did the MyTemp in the traditional way, I think it would have come in at around 5 to $10 million, at least, minimum, right? And we did MyTemp, I think, on a budget just over $2 million Canadian. That's like $1 US, Joel. <laughs> but uh, I'll get aside. We did it in that. And then I think, you know, we learned a lot of lessons. So could we do it cheaper now? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, I think these kind of trials we could do probably with the sticker price of, you know, one to 1.5 million. This magnesium trial we're trying to do under 2 million and it's a bigger trial. So uh, that's the benefits here. Like at the end of the day, the one of the, one of the barriers to us doing trials and generating evidence for like 90% of the decisions we make in the dialysis that we want the evidence is the sticker price. Like, you know, and this is uh, one way to um, generate evidence in an efficient manner that's cost effective. Excellent. This has been great. Does anybody have any other fun? I think we've kind of beat this one to death. Is, does anybody have anything else burning that they wanted to say? I, I, I do have one. Colder. I got one last. Oh, that's good. I got one last thing. The methods on how you did the randomization was so bad, crazy. Okay, uh, I will bleep that out. <laughs> the, do you guys? Did you guys look at this randomization? They 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 had eighty four dialysis units and they had to randomize them and they did all possible ran- like the, uh, they did all possible randomizations and then looked at how the groups would balance out and they found like a hundred thousand that the ba- the groups were relatively balanced and they just randomized then they just randomized from those randomization schemes if you were to think of if you were to put you know 12 or 15 or 100 different ways to randomize this would not be in the top 100 ways to randomize this I, I, is just a crazy way to get that can i tell you why we did this yeah okay so there's and, no I mean, magic. Do you wanna, did I did I get that story relatively right? Did I get it even close to a good description, or did I was I off by no, a no, major no? No, no, you're, you're describing it well. Let me let me just give you the context. Yeah. So one is there's no magic about randomization. So if you randomly allocate, like that's one of the considerations on small trials. If you do a trial of a hundred patients, randomization is not going to solve the the challenge of getting imbalance in the baseline characteristics between the two groups. So then if you see a difference between the two groups, it might be very much due to the differences in baseline compared to the intervention effect. And in modeling, you need typically sample sizes of at least 1,000 in a two-arm parallel group RCT to try to minimize this concern. So when you have 84 units, there is a concern, a strong concern that you can get imbalance. And that could potentially really be a, a nail into the trial in the sense that you can do adjustment afterwards, but the community never likes those things, right? Like they kind of like, uh, so there's a strong chance if you only randomly allocate 84 centers that you could get imbalance in the baseline characteristics, either center level or patient level characteristics. That again, if you see a difference in groups, that has nothing to do with the treatment effect. So that's why in this case, we use the method of constrainment. Essentially, you have a universe, because we have all the data already, you're creating multiple randomizations, as you're saying, Joel, and then you find those random schemes that give you balance on the characteristics you think you're, you care about the most, and then you randomly select those. And then that ensures that your table one, as occurred here, has excellent balance on the measured characteristics. You'll never know about the unmeasured, but we had a lot of measured characteristics and it was balanced. So that gives more confidence in the community that any difference or sim, you know, non-difference in the, in the, in the, groups is not to do to something 
due to imbalanced characteristics. And you've, you've seen this happen. You probably had even journal clubs. There's even in, if it's not, if there's difference between the baseline characteristics, no matter what the trialists do afterwards, they do, oh, I didn't adjust now. So I did this and that. You're going, what's going on here? I don't believe the results. So that's, that's, that's the rationale why in these cluster charts, you have to be careful because by chance alone, you could get imbalanced when you have small numbers of clusters. Yeah, the sample size is 15,000, but at the same time, the sample size is 84 centers. Uh, so so in, from that point of view, it's a small sample size yeah. you know, of 84. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you really have to be careful. Okay, I'm sorry for that derailment. Anything anything else anybody has on this? Hey, I want to congratulate you. I mean, this is, I think, a really impressive trial. I really look forward to the days that we get. There, I, I feel like there's so many questions in dialysis that can be answered with studies analogous to this. I hope you have a lot of productivity going forward, and we really discover a lot. I am very grateful to this answer, even though it's not what I wanted to see. Congratulations on a really good trial. Well, again, this was a major partnership between 84 hemodialysis facilities, all their administrative staff, all the nurses, all the patients, uh, patient partners who helped execute the trial. And uh, the nice thing is that everyone felt this was a positive experience, even though, again, we didn't get the results we wanted. And so they're enthusiastic about doing more trials. And so I think that's really great. And that includes all the community sites also in Ontario. And, and so I'm just really thankful to have such a great group of people to work with in doing these things. So now we're going to do our tubular secretion swap. No, what do you got? So right now I'm watching, uh, there was this movie called Everything Everywhere at Once that Prime yeah. Video has. And it, it, Prime Video keeps telling me I should watch it. I should watch it. Uh, cool. I, I started watching it for the first five minutes and I stopped. It, it seemed boring, you know, some laundry and what's going on. And then I persevered and it's, it's hilarious. It's extremely funny. Uh, it's about the multiverse uh, in a very funny way with a lot of dark humor and uh, and uh, action highly highly recommended the multiverse not the metaverse uh highly recommended what's it called again uh everything everywhere at once it's on uh, prime video michelle yo uh, she got a golden globe award for best actress it's it's, it's funny it's good i highly recommend yeah it. yeah go go beyond the first 10 minutes in case it seems it's got a slow start but then it's uh, relentless action excellent Nine, what do you got? Uh, I'll give a <clears throat> indirect shout out to a friend of the pod, Josh Mezrich, who is on mm-hmm. the Xenotransplant episode. So his, I found out, at least during that episode, that his brother Ben Mezrich is a best-selling New York Times author, um, or sorry, uh, New York best, you know, best-selling author who wrote books that inspired movies like 21 and The Social Network and the um, upcoming one, Dumb Money. Uh, so I read his most recent book called The Midnight Ride. Uh, it's a along the same themes as some of his other fiction, it's a thriller. Um, it uh, was actually initially written as a novella for the Boston Globe, and then he compiled it into a novel. Super quick read. It took me two, two and a half nights or so to read it. And it's, uh, you know, it's a page turner. It's about a MIT student who counts cards and makes money on the side who runs into an ex-con. And they're trying to find a philosopher's stone created by Paul Revere. And it's kind of takes you through Boston. So if you're looking for something to read, it's, it's again, a, a kind of a quick, fun read. And I believe that Steven Spielberg has the movie rights. And so eventually this is going to become a movie. Uh, and there's supposed to be sequels coming. Excellent. Excellent. Sophie, what do you got? Oh, mine is unrelated to reading. I'm back to not reading right now. Um. <laughs> hey, one book a year is plenty. Don't don't let anybody convince you of anything else. 
so I am in the throes right now of we're doing our medical student. Um, it's called the Trek curriculum and they, you know, they're, it's their first year and they come through and they do, um, everything nephrology and urology. And, um, I am, I think on the fourth session, I just completed the fourth session. I'm also on inpatient right now. And I did four hours of these small groups, group sessions with these medical students. Um, and I tell you what, this is intense. And um, this is, I, I have absorbed, we usually have about 12 students. I've absorbed about four or five additional ones. And it's mainly because they would rather learn like me, um, excuse me, mechanisms and why we do things as opposed to just memorizing equations. And um, I spend a lot more time on doing that and drawing a lot of pictures and having like sort of escapades up on the board. That sounds naughty, but escapades up on the boards and like drawing <laughs> all sorts of um, algorithms and differential diagnoses and nephrons here and there. And I just, um, because what we do and one of the things we care about most is medical education and trying to bring our medical students back into this fantastic field of nephrology. We need to remember that it's not just like expecting them to know things, but really trying to educate them and build it from the bottom up and help them understand it as opposed to expecting them to memorize concepts, but understand the concepts. And so I'm in the midst of that and it's been um, consuming me and enjoyable, but also really challenging because I'm also on the inpatient service. Excellent. Excellent. Amit, what do you got? Okay, so I can maybe tell you a story. Before I entered into medical school, I went to undergrad university, Canadian University, and I was wrestling on the varsity team. And I was reasonably good. Actually. You were a wrestling. collegiate wrestler? Did you say you were a collegiate wrestler? Correct, correct. And so I used to really- The only nephrologist in the world that was a collegiate wrestler. And I wrestled at the nationals, for et cetera. And so then a few things come out of this. One is that- <laughs> uh, Me too. so so that's that's not where i was going with the story so then so first thing is that i know this is non-visual but i was pretty lanky at that time still too i had good leverage but pretty lanky so um first of all the at the at the i remember at the 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 finals at the the nationals and they had like bronze medal match and, and gold medal match i was wrestling for bronze medal and then they pick me randomly for drug testing, although I looked like the least person who was on any kind of drug enhancing uh, treatments. But then what really what is um, abused in these settings is diuretics because we have to cut weight, right? We have to make weight classes. And so uh, I, I wasn't, a, it was pretty easy for me to lose four or five pounds. You'd run in like a sweatsuit. Sometimes you'd go in the sun. It was kind of probably bad for your health, but we used to do that. And so they're also testing for diuretics. But then later when I became a nephrologist, I'm wondering, what if you just put a, a dialysis catheter in and just took off a few liters UF? Like, you could never test that. <laughs> you, could ne- you could never detect that, ever. Like, you know, and maybe that's happening, all kidding aside, at the Olympic level. I'm just tongue-in-cheek a bit here, but, you know, how would you ever determine that? <laughs> like uh, Lance Armstrong and Erythropoid and, you know, yeah. The other oh, side of the coin. That's newer. where all those aquaresis machines from the ICU went. I was wondering. <laughs> Newer and creative Olympic ways committee. to cheat in Olympic wrestling. A, a textbook by Amit Garg. Okay, excellent. 
Okay. So when uh, House of the Dragon came out this fall, I did miss it and I didn't hear much about it. Maybe I wasn't plugged in right. And I just started watching it and it's really good. This is the prequel to Game of Thrones. And, you know, I thought that last season of Game of Thrones was kind of a bummer. And I kind of figured, oh, they're, it's not a great launching pad for a whole new series. Your last season wasn't very good. And here's your spinoff. But boy, it's great. Good acting, good acting, good storytelling, really good production values. Highly recommend House of the Dragon on HBO. Okay, guys, thanks a lot. And Joe, you're there. I watched the first episode, but I actually couldn't get past the first. I watched Game of Thrones. I watched the first episode of House of the Dragon, but I couldn't get past it. It didn't really catch my attention. Does it get better? I would would highly recommend it. I think it's really good. But I was was sucked in on the first episode. I I was really like, ooh, this is good. So maybe... You do okay. get accustomed to sort of the age jumps that that sort of threw me off a little bit. Yep. There, um, and but there there are some shocking pieces of this that were a little bit more shocking actually than Game of Thrones to be honest. But not not saying don't watch it. But I I, I actually got very much shocking. more than Red Wedding type shocking. There may never be an episode more shocking than that because that kind of set the tone, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It was like. Yeah, the first season, you're like, okay, the protagonist is Ned, and then they kill Ned, and you're like, okay, well, now the protagonist is Rob, and then they kill Rob, you're like, oh my god, I'm done. <laughs> I, 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 nobody, right? You know, so, uh, <laughs> Red Wedding was, was nutty crazy. 